um, with what's going on. So I changed the direction of the message pretty late in the week, and so I hope it won't seem like it's real uh, unpolished or not ready, um, and I think you understand that. In regards to our world's condition, no, none of us should be surprised that uh, something is going on that's hard. We live in a sin-cursed world that has been stained ever since Eve fell to the serpent's deception. And the serpent's deception has always been to doubt the goodness and sovereignty and authority of God. And there can be all kinds of different reactions to what's going on in our, in our society. Fear is being expressed, disappointment from some on how... Uh, whether a sports season or a school semester or something that was uh, looked forward to has been canceled. Um, there may even be anger or uh, disagreement with how our elected officials are dealing with this. I, I did see a funny comic uh, this week that said, wow, all my Facebook friends are now chronic disease experts. You know, because everybody on everybody has an opinion, and everybody is right, and and uh, so there's all kinds of different emotions. Um, there's two that Christians should not be gripped by: surprise and fear. Okay, there is no surprise that as we live in a sin cursed world that we experience these types of things. It's almost a surprise we don't experience it more, really. Um, and we also should not fear. There is no reason to be afraid. The two expressive emotions that I thought of that Christians should be governed by in this time is a hopeful joy and a thankful heart. Philippians chapter 4, verse 4 says, To rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say it just in case you didn't get it, Paul said. Again, I say rejoice. There is to be joy in all things. Joy is not the absence of pain, and joy is not also a response simply to what is happening around us or our circumstances. Joy is not rooted in our circumstances. Joy is, is rooted in, in Christ. Rejoice in the Lord. And when we say a thankful trust, 1 Thessalonians 5 says that in everything we should give thanks, and we should be trusting the Lord in a difficult situation. It doesn't mean we thank Him for diseases, it doesn't say thank Him for everything, but it says in everything, give thanks. We can give thanks and have a hopeful joy because there is a sovereign God in control of these things. We can thank Him for the common grace gifts that I mentioned, that there are scientists, there, are govern there is our government, our doctors, that we can give thanks for the common grace gift of our bodies, that generally speaking, our bodies can re repel this disease with exceptions, of course. So I want to turn to Psalm 90 to help us through some of these emotions, and it's a unique time. And I mean, this is an unprecedented time in our nation where many churches are closed today. Um, schools are closed. I mean, these are unheard of things. Basketball tournaments that have been played since 1930 are canceled. Churches that have never been closed since the Spanish flu in 1918 have closed. So this really is a generational thing, and it would be foolish for us not to examine it from a biblical perspective. And I'm sad and sorry that all of our friends uh, from St. Clement and Woodside, whose churches were closed, didn't come and want to seek out information. And we'll talk more about that in just a second. I just want to walk through Psalm 90 together 
and see that there are three major sections that just walking through it, we can immediately make then some applications. Um, as I mentioned when I read it, it's a prayer of Moses, the oldest of the Psalms. And so to keep in mind that this was written at a time when, um, when uh, the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness and discouraged at the, at the sovereign punishment of God, and also, it's important to note that Psalm 90 throughout history has probably been read by many people over an open grave. Teach us to number our days. It's a, it's a passage that goes right along with the fear of death and suffering, etc. And people break up the passage in different ways. Here, here's how I decided to break it up. Here's our outline. I'm even going to give you the application, and then we're going to walk through it. Okay? I see it breaking up in verses 1 to 6. 1 to 6 discusses the majesty of God, or we could say that we, this is God, our sovereign refuge. And so what is the application of that? The application is to rest. I'm giving you everything right at the beginning, and then we'll go back. Verse 1 to 6, I see is the majesty of God, that he is our sovereign refuge, and what should we do in the midst of trouble and trial? We rest in our sovereign refuge. Second, I see verses uh, 8, did I say 1, I think I said 1 to 7, right? Or whatever I said, 1 to 6. Maybe it's 1 to 7. It breaks, that's a little bit difficult. And then 7 or 8 down to verse 11 is the anger of God. The anger of God which is expressed that he is our strong judge. And what should we do with a judge? We should repent. We should repent. The discussion in verses 8 or 7 to 11 discusses our sin, our frailty, um, God's judgment, his anger against sin, his wrath upon the sinner. What is a person to do in light of that? They are to repent. We can rest in the majesty of God as our sovereign refuge. We must repent because of the anger of God as our strong judge. And last, verses 12 to 17, the grace of God, or if you'd rather, the mercy of God, um, that he is our satisfying father. And what do we do with that? We rely on him. Well, that's the message. Want to pray and go home or you want to talk about it more? I gave you it all. You're all supposed to say, we want more, we want more. Okay, let's go. First section. Verses 1 to 6 or 1 to 7, 1 to 8, somewhere in there is where we see the majesty of God. When things are difficult, the best thing to do is, we sang it, turn our eyes on Jesus. Look to God as our refuge. A right and proper view of God always puts everything into perspective. This life is so fleeting and so short that if any of us or any of the people that we know were to be infected by the virus and they're believers, they're going to go to eternity uh, with God. And a, so a proper view of him helps us to put these things in perspective. Moses begins by addressing God as Lord. He does not address him. And you see in verse 1 there, it's not capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. When our Bible translators see the word Yahweh in the Old Testament language, they translate it in English with all capitals, L-O-R-D, so that you know that is the self-given, self-sufficient, self-existent name of God, Yahweh. But oftentimes, the Hebrews and the Jews were so scared to even utter that name, think of it, Think of the reverence of God, of, in God where we are so scared to even mutter his name and then think about watching a game show when they win $5,000 and what comes out of their mouth, right? They, everyone, everyone, whether they're surprised or angry or confused or scared, they say the Lord's name and they say it in vain. 
Different perspective here, the reverence. So they didn't use the word Yahweh in this particular name. This is, this is the name Adonai. And then when you see L, small O-R-D, you know that. The word Adonai was sometimes used in place of Yahweh, sometimes not, when it was thought that Yahweh was too holy to even speak. And this word, Lord, Adonai, is one that points to the authority and power of God. Sometimes you see writers using the two words together, Lord God. We'll read that in the scripture a lot, right? Lord God, Adonai, Yahweh. And when those names are put together, it's like this is pointing out the absolute matchlessness of this being. Here he just uses this word Adonai. So our immediate reading of this oldest psalm of Moses is to begin by addressing the supreme authority, the supreme powerful God. And it is this Adonai, this powerful Lord, who has been our safe haven, our dwelling place, our refuge. It is a supreme and powerful Lord who is our security. Now let's remind ourselves of the context. Moses is wandering through the wilderness with the Hebrews and they have no home. They are, they are nomads wandering because of their sin. They need a dwelling place, and they say it about their Lord. Lord, you are our dwelling place. We can find a home and a safety with you. And think about it, as all people throughout all generations could. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. As our fathers, I'm talking about us, not the, not the Hebrews, as our fathers trusted in God during difficult times and ran to Him for refuge and strength as a safe haven, we can do that too. Because God has been faithful throughout all generations. Isn't that encouraging on its own? To think of our forefathers who gathered at different times and struggled through different things, whether it was on a national or global level or just a personal level or a church or community level, we can go to this powerful God who has all authority and power as our safety and as our refuge. The self-existent God comforts us, protects us, preserves us, and he does it with a faithful consistency. Day by day, month by month, year by year, he is there as our faithful refuge. To our fathers and generations past, God was a refuge. To believers who were hunted down in first century Jerusalem, like Stephen and others of our brothers and sisters, he was a refuge. In this passage, God's eternality is praised. God's self-sufficiency is praised. I mean, the, the, I, I, try to, I try to wonder, where, where do people run when, when, they, when they need security and 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 they're scared of something where where do people go they run to they run to people that they trust uh when your kids were little and there was a thunderstorm they would crawl into bed with you because they trusted you and they were scared um and, and sometimes we can trust the wrong things um the, 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 the news networks do not have the answers that people are searching for in their time of great panic. Now they do to a certain degree, wash your hands, all that stuff, but, but the idea of having an eternal answer, they don't have it. It is God who does. Notice in verse number two how God's eternal nature is praised. Before the mountains were brought forth, 
or ever you had formed the earth and the world. We could stop on that as well. His creative power is on display. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now, probably one of the grandest aspects of creation are mountains, right? You've all, have you all driven through Denver and stuff? Have you, been, have you seen? I mean, mountains just make you gasp, right? The, the, the grandeur and the majesty of such a thing and you think about, and I, I meant to, it was so late, it was yesterday that I was really putting in the study for this, and I wish I would have looked. I don't know for sure if the people who were wandering in the wilderness during the time of Moses could look and see mountains. I should have looked on a map, I just ran out of time. I imagine they could. I imagine they could see some mountains in the distance uh, from where they were wandering. And were they, were they thinking of that even in this? Now, we're out here wandering. We have no home. We're, we're nomads wandering. We need a refuge. We need a, a safety. And they could see the mountains in the distance. And then Moses is thinking, before those mountains were even formed, before you made the world, you've been there, God. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. As solid and as immovable and as protective as mountains seem, our God pre-existed those because He made those. As the creator of these great things, God stands greater than them as He is eternal and self-sufficient. Perhaps the, perhaps the Hebrews felt exposed and vulnerable. We know they did when they uh, were being chased by Pharaoh and ended up at the Red Sea with nowhere to go. Um, when we feel vulnerable and scared and fearful and exposed, God is our eternal refuge and strength. We read two of the verses in our responsive reading today with Dave, one from Deuteronomy, was it 33 or 34? Um, God, you are our everlasting refuge, or you, God, you are my refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And then one that we probably are very familiar with, Psalm 46, verse 1, which says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. With that perspective of God, no believer should fear. Is that right? I mean, when, you, when we have the right view of God, he, we should not be fearful. Now, let's be real vulnerable and transparent, okay? I, I am a little fearful for Allie. I'm worried about her. I'm nervous. She had pneumonia, and it... it and she's far, far away. That's my baby, okay? Um, but God is good, right? Uh, and whatever fears we may have, it just happens to be that it's on a worldwide level and people are fearful, and maybe you're fearful. I don't know how everybody's feeling. But when we feel that way, the right thing to do is not dwell on, well, what could happen? What? Oh, no. It's to, it's to go to the Scripture and remind ourselves of the character of God and think about the character of God just in these first three, few verses, right? He is the Lord, we said. He's the supreme power, the authority. He's a safety. He's a protection, our dwelling place. All generations, his faithfulness, right? He's been consistent throughout history. He's, he's self-existent, eternal, before the mountains were formed. He's the creator, and from everlasting to everlasting, you are God, Jehovah, Yahweh, self-existent one. Think of all the things we just, in the first two verses, how Moses is saying, it is the character of God that you can depend on. It is the unchanging, faithful character of God that we can have quiet confidence in. 
Now, there's a huge contrast. We're about to turn the page here to what we're like. (laughs) Very frail. Look at verse number 3. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. So you have in verses verse 2 and 3 here, you have the eternality of God right against the frailty of human beings. God's eternal existence is the foundation for all of our trust. And in contrast to His stability, all we have in ourselves is weakness and brevity. A thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. I see two terms in here I wanted to talk about. Dust. Um, dust. God, of course, made Adam from the dust of the, of the earth. And again, his sovereignty is in view here. According to this passage, who is it that decides when man's life ends? Right? God is, is symbolically here speaking. You are the one who return men to dust and say, return, O children of man. Men and women do not die because of the hand of fate, but because of the decree of God. Okay, It is not fate or chance or luck or, oops, I happened to shake hands with someone who has a disease and now I'm dead and what a, what a horrible stroke of misfortune that was. Or I happened to, as, as Dave showed uh, yesterday, I happened to be driving and was T-boned by another car and I survived. Oh, what a lucky break. Right? It is not, we, our lives do not end by fate chance or karma but by God's decree and who can who can stop God from saying death and who can who can beg God to say life you understand what I'm saying who can beg for a few more minutes I mean the 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 our lives are in his hands either way about anything about this or walking out on the street and slipping on the ice and cracking your head I mean God is the one who decides the day and hour of our death. In fact, in Acts chapter 17, when Paul is preaching on Mars Hill, we just looked at it last week in Sunday school, he says, God, you are the one who appoint the habitations of men and determine their dwelling places. Right? At this, I mean, God at any moment could say, Andy, return to dust. I mean, that would take a while for my body to do that, but you understand what I mean. He would say, it's time, you're done. Our lives are in his hands. And just like we said in our gospel project, every breath, every heartbeat, every function of every organ is a gift from Him. In Him we live and move and have our being. You know, we are completely safe in the will of God. Allie is completely safe. I have to keep reminding myself of that because we, we're humans and we struggle with panic and fear and nervousness, right? I'm not the only one who does that. Please say right. So, right? We're, we're nervous about those things, but we just got to remind ourselves she's completely safe. I mean... Last fall, it was a mosquito biting her and the dengue fever. Now it's this. And, and maybe some strange man on Guam comes into their apartment. And anything could happen, but not outside the sovereign will of God. He will decree that for all of us. And we can take comfort in that. The thousand-year statement here, it seems like a long period of time when you think about a thousand years. Whenever they have Jeopardy categories that are like from a thousand years ago, I don't know any, I, I can't even know what they're talking about. Like these people attack these people in 1,000... Think of what has happened since 1000 A.D. to now. That's a long time. With God, it's, a, it's nothing. The, the passing of time. God, God does not live, of course, in time. 
But the point is to mention the brevity of our own lives. And I mentioned this before, and some of you weren't here, but just for fun, you know, it helps me to think visually. If you stick your hand out, don't touch anybody. But if you stick your hand out, everybody should do it. Stick your hand out. And then you think of eternity past and eternity future. And this is the extent of your life. Think about it. It's nothing, right? It's nothing. I like to think that visually. Like, all that has come before me, okay, now Andy comes on the scene, and then all that's come after me, this, this is my existence. It's just quickly, quickly, quickly. Further discussion on the brevity of life happens in verse 5 and 6. I mean, generations, it says, are swept away like a flood, like a dream. You think of all the people who have ever lived that thought themselves to be something, they're all dead. These great generations and empires, God just has swept them away like a flood. It says here that their health and strength in the morning, it's like grass that is renewed, but then in the evening it fades and withers and dies. It's speaking of the brevity or the quickness. Life is a vapor, a breath. I mean, I don't mean to sound mean or trite, but like if the virus doesn't get us, something's going to get us. And it's going to get us quick. It's going to be over. God's stability and faithful protection throughout all of the generations that he has wiped away, he can still be trusted in times that are uncertain. So that's application number one. We can rest in our sovereign refuge. Let's talk about section two. Okay, wherever we broke it off here, verse seven or so. Um, His anger, okay? Do you know why the virus is here? It's because of sin. Do you know why people die? It's because of sin. We live in a sin-cursed world. The reason for our frailty and the brevity of life and the greater danger is the disease of sin. The greatest problem anyone faces is not a virus. It is the wrath of God. Verse 7, we are brought to an end by your anger. See it? We are brought to an end by your anger. It's possible Again, this is the oldest psalm. It's possible that Moses might have been thinking about Adam and Eve. We always wonder, well, how did Moses know about Adam and Eve? He was divinely, divinely revealed to him by God, no question, right? That's how he could write about the creation in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, etc. And perhaps he's, thinking about, perhaps he's thinking about Adam and Eve and the punishment that they faced, the anger that came down upon him, the wrath. Um, and maybe he's thinking, I don't know when exactly this was written, maybe he's thinking about his own sin. And remember, we feel kind of bad for Moses because he hit that rock instead of speaking to it, and he was punished and said, you can't go into the promised land. Maybe he's thinking of that. I don't know exactly when this was written. I didn't get that deep into the study, but it could be he's thinking about that. Think about this, though. Our mortality is not accidental. The sweeping away that happens in verse number 5, who does it? Look at verse number 5. Who does this sweeping away? Who does it? God does. Who brings us to an end? He does, right? Who returns us to dust? You you see this? Like, men and women think so highly of themselves when God in any moment could sweep them. I mean, look at the terms he uses. Sweep them away. And it's almost like the grass. One of the things I read in Spurgeon late last night was it was almost like a machete coming in and cutting down all that dark grass that's withered away. That's the anger of God upon our sins, and it is justly deserved. Do you understand that? This is not, we don't, we don't cower in fear of God. We, we justly deserve that. 
I like verse number 7. I like a word there in verse number 7 that is very explosive. It says, we are brought to an end by your anger. And then it says, by your wrath we are dismayed. That's, that's kind of a funny word, isn't it? We are dismayed. It sounds like, oh, you know, it doesn't sound as powerful as it is. The word means terrified in the original. It means to be in terror of something. Dismayed isn't, an, isn't a word that we use to think that way. And I, and I looked where other places that it was used in the Bible to help us to understand its meaning. And in Genesis 45, it was used in verse number 3. Remember when uh, Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery? Remember that? And, and, and Joseph was uh, cast, uh, by God, was cast into the position of being the second in command and helped Egypt avoid the famine and Pharaoh put him in this high position. And then his brothers came back, but things had changed so much that they didn't recognize him. And then... Finally, after all this, I don't, know, I don't know why Joseph did all this magic of putting the ba- silver in the bag and all that stuff, but they finally came to the point where Joseph said, brothers, it's me. And you know what the brothers' reactions were? When, the, when Joseph's brothers realized he was alive, they were dismayed. They were terrified. Because Joseph was now going to exact his revenge. In their minds, right? Joseph was going to exact his revenge for this. It is used in the Bible when a sudden threat comes and conveys great fear. Think about that. A sudden threat that conveys great fear. Joseph's revelation of himself, whoa, a sudden threat. Like, I mean, three weeks ago, we would not have been talking about this disease, and it's upon us. We have seen that in the world on display this week. We have seen them cower in fear, right? We've seen many people respond, and I don't say that to mock them. This is how the world responds. It has put them on guard. They're running to the store. They're buying out the food. They're, they're taking great precaution. It's, it is right to exercise precaution, but it is never right to fear for us. Isaiah 41, verse 10. Fear not. Listen to this. Fear not. Be not dismayed. Don't be terrified. Why? For I am your God. Isaiah 44, 8, fear not, do not be afraid. Luke 12, 7, we just talked about this, well, it's probably been a few months now, and, and we were relating it in our Sunday Night Gospel Project because of the knowledge of God. Remember in Luke, well, remember this, this uh, where Scripture tells us that even our very hairs are numbered, and this is supposed to help us not to worry or be fearful because God knows the very number of hairs on your head. And then we get into our bodies and we talk about the number of atoms that are, and, and just, the numbers are just off the charts, un, can't even grasp them, right? Tens of millions. God doesn't just know the hairs, he knows all those things that are going on, right? More atoms in our body than there are stars in the universe. And, the reason, and, and thinking about all that, in Luke twelve seven, he says, your hairs are numbered, fear not. It's always the right perspective of God. On the contrary, and this is a big contrast, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, Hebrews says. We have seen crowds of people this week panicking and fearful. We've seen the media kind of project that upon us. Yet how many of them are dismayed at the wrath of God upon their sins? There are lines of people at Costco. Why can't we get ten people to drop in here? So afraid of physical death 
and ignoring spiritual peril. Right? There is no comparison. We know that light and life has come through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the avoiding of God's wrath comes only when we place our faith and trust in Him. Jesus who bore God's wrath on our behalf. This is the only reason that verse number 7 is not true of us. By your wrath we are terrified. We don't have to be terrified anymore because the wrath of God has fallen upon His Son, Jesus Christ. But the wrath of God abides on those, John 3, who do not have the Son while there is no condemnation, Romans 5, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or Romans 8, that is. We must find our life in Christ to be free from that wrath. So here's, here's the irony of it. There are those of us in Christ who know that God is our refuge and have no reason to fear, but we struggle with it. And then there are those outside of Christ who are fearful of temporal or physical loss and are giving not one thought, completely ignoring with great apathy the terror that should be gripping them because the wrath of God is on them. Right? The urgent plea for our community and our nation and our world is the, is the application for this section is to repent. For those in that first category, let's put these two categories up again, right? There are those in Christ who know God is our refuge and have no reason to fear, and yet we become afraid. And then there are those who are apart from Christ and should be cowering in fear and aren't. What is the application here? Don't fear, trust. What is the application here? You better fear and turn. Repent from your sins. That's the urgent plea. We think of the sins of the Hebrews. Again, the Israelites wandering in the desert. That's the context of this psalm. And the punishments that they had as a result. Verse 8 perhaps should spark some fear in our minds. Do we think we can escape? Do we think any sins escape the notice of God? You have set our iniquities before you, verse 8 says, our secret sins in the light of your presence. We are exposed. I think, it was, I think it's Hebrews that tells us we are naked and exposed. He sees all things. God sees all of our sins. There are no hidden sins with God. Whenever I'm reminded of this, I'm reminded of Achan in the Old Testament who stole the goods from Jericho and hid him in his tent. Everybody found out. Think of the punishment that came down on him. Him, his family, his kids, all stoned. God is light and in him is no darkness. All of our sins will be exposed in his light. Yet there is delight for believers when God now places those sins behind His back. We are bought with the precious blood of Christ and we must pray for daily cleansing because nothing is hidden from God and no one will get away with anything. Let's conclude this section in verse number 11. Verse number 9 and 10 continue to talk about the brevity of our life. The past, I mean, it's very similar to what we've already talked about. Our days pass away under His wrath. The years of our life are short and they're troublesome. And then verse number 11. Really, it can be translated this way. Who can stand against your anger? <laughs> right? Your wrath is as great. Our wrath, your wrath is, should be, our fear of you should be as great as your wrath. The end of verse 11 is saying. The section is telling us to repent. Well, let's, let's finish this up. Time is going here. 
Section three then. So the, the majesty of God, the, this, the sovereign refuge, we can, we can rest in Him. Yet His anger is against those who sin. We should repent. And Oh, I wish. I mean, I think about, uh, think about the last time our country faced something this wide-ranging would have been September 11th probably. And our church was packed that night for prayer. Tuesday night, people coming in and praying. Like, where, where is that turning back to God? Let us pray for our nation that in a moment of crisis like this, people will turn to God. People will repent. And in, in, a, in, a, mass, um, in a mass group, will run to him. And that we, I mean, even some were saying, we're getting calls. What should we do? What should we think? We can turn people not to panic, but to trust Christ. What a great opportunity for us. Anyway, section three, the grace of God. Um, and let's just make some quick applications. We've seen the weakness of ourselves and the eternality of God. We've seen our own mortality and the brevity of our life against, um, against the judgment of God. And so the end, verses 12 to 17, is an appeal to God to pour out his mercy and grace. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of us's in the section. As a group, the, the Israelites are asking God to do something. So I, I, I ran out of time here at the end, and I'm going to give us four. Again, the, the key word is to rely on the, on the mercy, excuse me, on the mercy and grace of God. But I'll give us just four quick applications, real pertinent applications. I would call them petitions that we should make because they're formed in, the, in, the, uh, in, the, in a petition in this section. And forgive me for being a little disjointed. I hope it's coming through okay. Let's read this last section, 12, okay? And, and look for the four petitions that I'm going to point out. There's probably more, but here's what we should be asking God in this time. So teach us, this is 12, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servant. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So just another couple minutes. Let me give you these four things. Um, I would say that they're, they're this, teach us, pity us, satisfy us, establish us. Okay, let's walk through all those. Teach us is the first one. And what, sh- what are we asking him to teach us? Verse number 12, this is a petition and a prayer that God would not just help us to put an X on the calendar when a day is gone, but that we would live our brief lives for his honor and his glory, that we would seek out his wisdom that we would act in such a way that is holy. We must recognize the brevity of life and live each day for God. We can count each day as a gift that God has endowed to us. It's perfect because it goes right with our Bible project that we've done on Sunday nights. And the swift passing of the days. And ask Him, help us not to squander these days. I think it's interesting that some of us will have a little extra time. Um, and be at home a little bit more because of work or you know, schools have been called off and there'll be some different... At least it's going to be a change in the rhythm that we're used to. What are we going to do with some of this extra time? We're going to have Wednesday night at least. We're going to have Sunday night at least. I'd encourage you to, to, 
to read the Bible, to read Christian materials, to focus on our gospel project, and you look, work at memorizing that, listen to some online sermons and messages, uh, find some Christian materials. Don't, don't just fill it with Netflix and, and uh, Facebook. There's some extra time. Let's not squander this moment. Let's, let's do what the passage is telling us. Our days are numbered. Whether it be this week, next month, whatever, let's use this time. Let's invest it by growing in wisdom and holiness. And that, that is a God-given understanding. We, we need to pray and, and ask God to teach us to live that way. Teach us. Second, pity us. This is in verse number 13. Return is really the word relent. Um, in other words, stop the wrath, stop the judgment, God. It, this is not a prayer like Jesus come back. That's not what verse 13 is saying. Moses would have no idea what that would even mean as far as the Son of Man returning. This means God relent and pity us. Turn from your wrath, Moses is saying. that you be, And think about the Israelites and the wrath that they face because of their sin. And they say, please have pity on us. Here's what we should pray to God. God, would you see me for the miserable creature I am and show me some pity and mercy? Not in a, I'm not, I did it more in a begging way. But God, God, I desperately need you. I am a miserable creature of dust. And I'm prone to sin and fail. My life is brief. Please don't let it be bitter also. Pray that God's grace would come and depend upon that mercy. Listen, sin drives us from God and repentance begs us to return to Him. We can't say relent God, have pity on us if we're unwilling to repent of our sin. So we say have pity on us. Third, satisfy us. This is found in verses 14 and 15. It satisfies us in verse 15 begins with make us glad. This is the idea that God, would you teach us that the only thing that can satisfy us is a true experience with your love? Help us to stop filling our lives with other things that do not satisfy. Let us come to God and put our hope in nothing but him. And just quickly, and I'm sorry to go so fast, but the last is establish us. I really like this. Our lives are short, and Moses is praying, and I think we all have this innate desire to live a life of meaning, we could say, right? To, to, to do things in this life that are going to matter 100 years from now. So much of what we do every day isn't going to matter 100 years ago from now. This, this passage ends with this. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. And the last verse says, let the favor of the Lord be, of God be upon us. Establish the work of our hands. That's what's being expressed here. God, let, let our work have meaning beyond ourself, beyond our lives. Let the things that we're doing now be established. Let, let, and, and that's what I pray regarding our church. I, I would... I would pray that God would allow this church to be in existence 70, 80 years from now when we're all gone, but still have a gospel testimony. Isn't that a great thing to pray? Not, for, not so that our names can be written on the wall. Oh, look, Derek used to attend this church you know, 100 years. No, nothing about us, but that, that we could be involved in something so meaningful, advancing the kingdom in this life. Establish us. Teach us. Pity us. Satisfy us. Establish us. And... and all of the things that we've talked about today have hope, have pointed us to God and given us confidence in his strength. Let's pray about these things. Father, we... Uh
just hope that your word, we know that your word will have its work in our lives no matter what. Um, We know that the scripture says your word will not return to us void. We ask that it would find its mark today in the hearts of people who've listened. Help us to rest in you and trust your sovereignty for those that are fearful. Help them not to be. Help them to be reminded of your goodness and your power and strength. For those who are sinning in unrepentant ways, let us repent, God. Let us recognize that your wrath is upon our sin, especially if we're apart from Christ, Father. May those in this room that need to really trust Christ repent of sin. And may we, as Christians, confess our secret faults. Psalm I think it's 139 says that God search us see if there be any secret thing in us and we confess that sin to you now and God may our prayer be as Moses here prayed at the end primarily that you would satisfy us in your love so many things are vying for our attention help us to be fully satisfied and glad in you God in these uncertain days when we can't connect as often as we'd like help us to be in your word to be praying for one another lifting one another up connecting through text and phone And Father, protect these dear friends until we can gather again next Sunday. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.